Happy Father's Day to all my fellow dads out there. Mm-hmm. They weren't excited at the first service either. <laughs> Come on. Somebody's got to have something in the works for these dads out there. Um, I'm counting on nothing but riches from my five beautiful daughters. I really can't wait to open the cards that they've prepared. I feel like that's, that's one of my favorite parts of Father's Day, seeing what they're their hands have made um, and what, they're, you know, what they've come up with as far as their expression of, of uh, gratitude toward me as their father. And what I'm really grateful for is they don't call me out on all the mistakes I've made. Super happy about that. But anyways, happy Father's Day, dads. Um, I hope today for all the fathers and father figures that the people closest to you pull out all the stops and make you feel appreciated and loved and cared for and all that good stuff. And I hope if you're, if you're like many people um, who are a part of our church family, who you just miss your dad today a whole lot. I pray that, that, that the peace of God like overwhelms you and that the presence of God comes upon you in a way that brings to the forefront of your mind all the best parts of your dad. Um, I pray that today would be a day where you, you feel close to God and you're reminded of how much he loves you as ultimately our, our Heavenly Father as well. And um, so happy Father's Day. Uh, I, I got to admit, though, that um, I'm coming to you today with a degree of um, just heaviness. I feel like I'm carrying with me the, the weight of loss. And uh, I mean, I could, I could run you through the last couple of years. And, and the, uh, it's, it's been a lot of personal loss over the course of two years. Um, people that I've known my whole life. And I'll just say this. I think Grief hits a little differently when you lose somebody that you've known your whole life. Um, and so I'm coming, coming at, you know, today with a, with a degree of weightiness because of some personal losses that I've incurred. But also there's a, there's a great loss that uh, many people who are a part of this church family and who are a part of our church family up the road at Lighthouse Church in Glen Burnie who have, a, who have suffered a great loss earlier this week. Um, a young lady by the name of Nikki Healy who had been battling cancer ferociously um, and heroically for the last three years, came to the end of that, that journey, and, and God called her home. And um, for those of you who, who knew her personally, I know you're mourning, I know you're grieving. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is I'd love to invite you as our church family to pray for our extended church family down the road at Lighthouse as they prepare for her memorial service next week. I'd like specifically to invite you to pray for her husband, Steve Healy. He's the executive pastor at Lighthouse Church and their entire family. Um, the Shabilskis as well. That's Nikki's family. Um, there's no replacing the people that you love. I think you miss them until you're called home to be with them. And so in the meanwhile, I'd love for us to pray for them as a church family, just lift them up as they face uh, what I think is probably the most difficult thing you could face is saying goodbye to somebody that you absolutely uh, never envisioned saying goodbye to. So would you pray with me? God, we, um, we thank you that you're faithful and, and that you're loving and that you're kind. And uh, we're told in so many different ways that you're the kind of God that's, that's close to the brokenhearted. And then you showed us exactly what that meant um, when you sent your son Jesus. And you sent Jesus to the tomb of Lazarus. And it's the shortest scripture in the entirety of all the Bible. It says that Jesus wept. And, um, and we know that, that you personally came down to us in the person of Jesus. And you wept in front of the tomb of Lazarus. But you didn't just weep. You, you unleashed a holy anger. And that was a proclamation of 
of, uh, of you just standing against the gates of hell and, and, and what death was doing to ravage uh, humanity. Uh, Jesus weeping at the tomb of Lazarus is, 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 is evidence that there's a God of heaven who one day will personally wipe away every tear and, and cure every pain and every illness and every sickness and, and put an ultimate end to death. And we're thankful that you're that kind of God. And we're thankful that Jesus, you're a high priest that can fully relate to the tears that we're crying right now and the pain that we experience. And we ask that you would encircle uh, the entire Healy family. Steve, specifically, as he continues to leave his fam- lead his family, uh, give him the strength and the confidence he needs to trust you and help them feel your power and your presence in a way that is so real to them right now, more real than they've ever sensed it. And God, help them to know that you're, you're a God of love, that, that you're a God that, that, that cares for them and is for them and is going to provide for them somehow through your riches in Christ Jesus. Be with them. Encircle them with your love, God. Fill them with your power, God, and, and uh, just help them to grieve as people who have hope. God, we love you so much, and we're thankful for your faithfulness in our lives. In your holy name, amen. Um, thank you so much for doing that with me. Um, now, where we're at today in our series is uh, we're, at, we're in week two of this four-week series that we've called Confidence, and really um, what this series does is it, it zooms in on a teaching that Jesus gave just a few hours before he was crucified, and he, was, he, he gave this teaching, it's part of a, a, a bigger set of teaching that runs from John chapter 13 through chapter 17. Our four weeks are focused on what Jesus has to say in chapter 14, and really what it was was it was a teaching that in a sense was a, was a training session that was intended by Jesus to prepare his followers for everything that lie ahead of them in their lives. It was also intended to prepare his followers to represent uh, God in their homes, in their communities, in their workplaces, and in the culture. And so all throughout chapter 14, what Jesus is in essence doing is he's giving us building blocks that prepare us to be the kind of people who have a confidence and a strength that's rooted in something outside of this world. It's actually the kind of confidence and strength that we need in a world that's full of trouble and turmoil and conflict and challenge and all the things that life tends to throw at people like us. And so last week what we looked at is um, the beginning verses of chapter 14 where Jesus was really trying to help us as a people root our confidence in the hope that he offers. And today what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at what it means to root our confidence to be people who are ultimately confident in the love of God. And as far as I'm concerned, I think according to Jesus, true confidence, like if we're going to be people of confidence, our confidence has to be rooted in something that nothing in this world or in this life can take away from us. And, 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 and according to Jesus, it's the love of God that we have in Jesus by grace through faith that's so bulletproof, it's so unshakable that it's capable of yielding in our lives the kind of confidence that we need to endure everything ahead of us in this life, even the tragedy of death. And so to get started today, I want to read two verses or two passages to you. Um, one of them's in chapter 14, but then the other one's 
in chapter 15. We're going to look at uh, John 14, 7 through 11, and then we'll look at John 15, 9 through 10. And really the intent of looking at these two verses, these two passages rather together, is to show you something about what Jesus had in mind as far as us as a people rooting our confidence in the love of God. So turn with me to John 14. I'm going to start in in verse 7. It says, If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Lord, said Philip, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been among you all this time without your knowing me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. And then over in John 15, here's what Jesus says. He says, as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. That's the holy word of God, and um, I got nothing but an amen for, for all of that truth that Jesus lays out there. And, and what we just read, are there, it's two, two passages, but in essence, these are some of the final words of Jesus, um, some things that he said to his disciples just hours before he was crucified, and I mentioned this earlier, but his aim was to help them develop the kind of confidence that they would need to face everything that lie ahead of them, everything that was getting ready to unfold in their lives. And part of what lay ahead of them was they were to be the kind of people who lived their lives in such a way that it communicated to the world at large that Jesus is the kind of God that can give you the strength and the confidence to face absolutely Anything, And so when you take these two passages together, at least from my vantage point, I think what you have is Jesus showing us that the most powerful, the most unshakable, the most unchangeable, the most stable thing we can root our confidence in is the love of God that is made available to us by grace through faith in Jesus. And so what I want to do today is I want to look at what Jesus says here and help us to see two things. First, I want to show you that knowing the love of God personally is a critical component of enduring confidence. And then secondly, I want to show you that knowing Jesus personally is how we come to know the love of God personally. So so, so let's start with, with taking a look at what it means when I say knowing the love of God personally is a critical component of enduring confidence. Turn with me to John chapter 14. We're going to read verses 7 through 9. Here's what Jesus says. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Lord, said Philip, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been among you all this time without your knowing me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, now in this this very brief exchange between Jesus and Philip, now now Philip was one of Jesus' first disciples. And he, he literally, he was the kind of person who when he met Jesus, he literally walked away from his career and everything that he was chasing after to follow Jesus. And in this, in this brief exchange, what we start to see, what starts to become clear is how critically important it is that our confidence is rooted in something that's stable enough to hold up under the crushing pressures of life. 
And in the question that, that Philip asks, I think it's a really familiar question. Um, it's a question that other, uh, other people have asked, and, and, and this question has been recorded. Maybe they've asked it in different ways in other, other parts of the Bible. If you remember Moses at Mount Sinai, he's interacting with God, and he says, God, show me your glory. In other words, he's asking for a picture. He's asking for a vision of God. That's what Philip's asking for. And I think it's the same question that, that I know I ask, maybe you do too, when, when we're facing uncertainty, when we're facing things in life or situations in life that we really can't negotiate with, like the loss of a loved one or, or a terminal diagnosis or a situation that's kind of spiraled out of control to the degree that we've lost any semblance of control. It's the same question we ask. And I think when we ask a question like this, it really highlights Something that every, at least I believe this, every human being has in common. And it's something that every human being innately wants, yet it's something that every one of us lacks. And that's absolute certainty. And I think the degree to which we feel certain is the degree to which we feel a sense of confidence. And I'd argue that, that we're all looking for absolute certainty. And until we find it, we end up rooting our confidence in things that end up proving to be not, you know, unstable. They're just not stable enough to hold us up when life comes crashing down. And so Philip, he's, he's in this place where he's asking God, he, he's asking for a vision of God, and he's convinced, he even, I mean, he point blank says it, he's convinced that that will be enough, that that's going to give him the jolt and the boost of confidence that he needs to face everything that lies ahead of him in life. And I've done the same thing. I think you've probably done the same thing too. You're in the middle of some uncertain situation and you're not really sure how it's going to work out. Maybe you're being pinched financially or maybe relationally you're in a position where things are imploding and you're not sure if your marriage is going to play out the way that you hoped it had or your relationship with your kids is going to end up the way that you really wanted it to be. Things have spiraled out of your control. And what you're thinking is, if I only had some clarity about next steps, if I only had a vision that things are going to work out, if I only had the financial resources that I feel like I need to get out of the jam that I'm in, I could have the confidence I need to actually face what I need to face. And, and, and here's what I think. And maybe you feel this way too. I think that even if, even if God answered all of the questions that I have today, even if he resolved all of the doubt that I have today, what I know is that around the next bend of life, something is going to just jostle me all over again, and I'm going to have a new wave of doubts and a new wave of questions, and I'm going to need some more answers. I think that we know innately that if, even if all our, qu our questions get answered today, there's coming a day when we're going to have a question that doesn't really have an answer or a problem that we can't seem to resolve. It's only a matter of time before we find ourselves in another bind. But, but I do want to caveat this a little bit because I don't think that, that that would be a reason to stop talking to God about what you're facing or asking God for what you feel like you need or pouring your heart out to God. I don't think that's, that's the charge here. What I do think is we should do that, pour out your soul before God, but do that in light of what Jesus says to Philip here. And here's what he says. He says, have I been among you all this time without you knowing me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. And, and what I really think is that Jesus' response to Philip here 
It's, it's intended to help us see that we need to ultimately root our confidence in something greater than a vision of God, something greater than a solution to the problem that we're currently facing. See, visions and solutions tend to be temporary. What we need is something that's more long-suffering, more capable of withstanding the storms of life. And yes, we should ask God to supply for our needs through Christ Jesus. And yes, we should petition God for restoration and for healing and for clarity through uncertainty. Jesus is not telling us to stop laying our hearts out before God. What he's doing is he's inviting us to root our confidence in the enduring, unwavering, unshakable, infinite love of God. He's inviting us to root our confidence in knowing the love of God in a deeply personal way way. And I do think it's worth noting, if, 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 if we were to do like a, you know, a bio on, on Philip, what we would discover is that he wasn't a fringe follower of Jesus. Like he was one of the first 12 disciples of Jesus. He had kind of close access over a period of three years where he was leaning into everything that Jesus said. He was applying the things that Jesus taught. And Philip, Philip actually, God used Philip to perform miracles, to revolutionize communities, to restore people. God used Philip powerfully, uh, and he had, been leaning, he had been learning directly from Jesus. He saw Jesus heal people. He heard the things that Jesus said. He saw how entire communities of people would flock to Jesus just to see their their loved ones healed. And so from my vantage point, what's so captivating and what's so convicting all, all at the same time about this encounter that Philip has with Jesus is in a sense what Jesus is saying is, Philip, I don't think you really know who I am. You've been around me for the past three years and you've heard my teaching and you've seen the way that I love people, and you've seen the miracles that I performed, but you don't really know me. And Philip, if you don't really know me, you haven't really had a personal encounter with the love of God yet. And what I don't think is that Jesus is trying to browbeat Philip and make him feel bad about himself. I don't even think this is an indictment. I think Jesus is politely and compassionately helping us see how easy it is for us to root our confidence outside of knowing the love of God personally. And I think if you're honest with yourself, at least if I'm honest with myself, I know that there's like an ebb and flow in my life where I feel like I'm rooting my confidence in the love of God and I'm rooting it in my intellect or my ability or or some other thing that makes me feel like I'm making it in life. And, and And I have to admit at a certain point that if I'm rooting my confidence in anything outside of the, the, the love of God, like, experiencing the love of God in a deeply personal, life-changing way. I'm, I'm rooting my confidence in things that have an expiration date. Anything outside of God has an expiration date. And so Jesus really is inviting Philip, but I think he's inviting us too to root our confidence in the love of God by grace through faith in Jesus because it can actually give us the kind of confidence that transcends anything that we're going to face in this life. And what I hear Jesus saying, and this, this is personally why I find this, this passage to be so convicting, is that it's possible. You could, you could be, you know, listening to Jesus for 30 years or 30 minutes. It's possible and it's common to know a lot about Jesus, to know a lot about his teachings, to know a lot about his love, to know a lot about the miracles that he performed, to attend church, to be active in your community, 
to be living what you consider to be a morally upright life, to be doing all of the things that you think create stability in your life and make you have a right standing with God without actually having experienced the one thing in this life that nothing in this life, not even death, can take away from us. The love of God that's made available to us by grace through faith in Jesus. And so I want to offer you this just as a way, um, I, I, in my opinion, this, this is a way to think about what a Christian is. And uh, from my vantage point, a Christian isn't somebody who's out there doing certain things. Although there are certain things you're going to do as a follower of Jesus that, that will set you apart from the culture. But a Christian is not necessarily someone who's out there doing, doing certain things. A Christian is someone who's had an encounter with the love of God that starts to overflow into and overtake every area of your life. And what it means is that the love of God is moving from being something you understand to something you stand your life completely under, something you're hiding your life in. It allows you to begin to see when you've had this personal encounter with the love of God, one thing that you'll begin to see, in my opinion, is that the most satisfying human existence is a life that's rooted in the confidence of God's unfailing love for you in Jesus. And so all that to say, this really isn't something that you can just know intellectually. It's something that you have to experience personally. Like knowing, some, knowing about God's love intellectually is not the same as having a personal encounter or a personal experience with the love of God. And I, I think the same is true about any other area of your life. You, you can know about suffering and not really understand or know suffering. You can know about your neighbor but not really know your neighbor. You can know about all kinds of things, but not really know about those things. And so what I, what I hear Jesus saying is that it's possible and it's common for people like us to know about the love of God without actually knowing the love of God in a deeply personal way. And according to Jesus, the kind of confidence we need to face everything life throws at us is a confidence rooted in knowing God's love personally. And, and I, take, I take all that to mean that there's really no, there's no higher experience, there's no greater good, there's nothing more satisfying than experiencing the love of God. According to Jesus, there's no greater confidence than a confidence rooted in the love of God. There's a, there's a German theologian that, that um, he kind of took what Jesus said and, 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 and he put it into his own words, and I think it's really helpful and so I'm going to share it with you. He's a, he's a gentleman by the name of Herman Bavnik, or Bavink. And here's how he explained it. Here's what he says. In God, love far transcends the love of creatures. For the love of God is independent, unchangeable, simple, eternal, and omnipresent. It does not depend on us, nor is aroused by us, but flows free and pure from the depths of the divine being. It knows no variation, neither falls nor rises, appears nor disappears, and there is not even the shadow of turning about it. It is not merely a property of the divine being alongside of other properties or attributes and never gets into conflict with these others, but it also coincides with the divine being himself. That's his real fancy way of, of, of trying to get at what he says next, that God is love. That's the essence of who God is. He himself, holy and perfectly, and with his whole being, 
And this love is not subject to time and space, but it stands above it and comes down out of eternity into the hearts of the children of God. And here, here's why the love of God can give us the confidence that we need. Such a love is absolutely reliable. Our souls can rest in it every need, including death itself. And if such a God of love be for us, who can be against us? And so when, when Philip comes at Jesus asking for this vision of God, and I love, there's like countless times where people tell Jesus what they think they need, and Jesus, he listens, and he, and he patiently responds, and he actually shows them what, they, what their heart is really looking for, and that's what's going on here. So when Philip comes with this re- request of a vision for God, Jesus offers him this love that, that, that Bavink is pointing out, this love that is absolutely reliable, and, it, and it's so much more powerful than a fleeting, a fleeting vision or a fleeting solution to whatever problem we face. He's offering Philip, and he's offering us a personal encounter with the love of God that that is capable of flowing over into every area of our lives and giving us the confidence to face anything that lies lies ahead of us, even death. And the reason all of that is possible is because the love of God is absolutely reliable. And so knowing the love of God personally is critical, it's a critical component of an enduring confidence. But secondly, knowing Jesus personally is how we know the love of God personally. Let's pick up in in John 14, verse 10. Here's what Jesus says. He says, Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. So, so, so based on what Jesus says here, what I'm going to try to do um, during this next portion of, 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 of what I'm going to share is just show you one of the ways that we can know Jesus personally. And, uh, and I think that um, it might sound simple, but it, it should be revolutionary all at the same time. So one of, the, one of the ways that we can know Jesus personally is through the words that he spoke. And then you couple that with the testimony about him. And what you really have is the Bible from cover to cover. So God's word ultimately is how we're going to learn, learn about Jesus. It's how we're going to get to encounter him on a, in a deeply personal way. But there's something that Jesus says in verse 10 that I want to share with you that I think is, is noteworthy. Um, it's actually a couple of things, and it's kind of confusing. At least it was to me. Maybe it won't be to you, but I'll share, I'll share my thought process. So, so Jesus says, I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me. That sounds pretty simplistic, right? I think ultimately what he's saying is there's oneness between Jesus and God the Father. But then what he says next, I feel like uh, it, just, it just like piqued my curiosity, and, and gave, I had some questions And here's what he says. He says, the words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own, which makes sense if he's one with the Father. It seems like, you know, maybe the Father's speaking through him, and that's probably what he's going to say next, but he doesn't say that. The next thing Jesus says is, the Father who lives in me does his works. And so on a surface level, that could seem confusing. Because he's, he's talking about oneness with the Father, and then he's talking about the words that he's speaking. And so logically, at least from my standpoint, it seems like Jesus would say, God's speaking through me. But he doesn't say that. He says, God is working through the words that I speak. 
The Father who, 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 who lives in me is actively working through the words that I speak. And so what I take that to mean is that the Word of God and the work of God are so deeply connected that they're really, it's hard to make a distinction. In other words, all God has to do is speak, and what he speaks comes to be. The, the, the writer of, of Hebrews, which is a New Testament letter, here's how he described the Word of God. He says in Hebrews 4, verse 14, for the Word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's able to judge the ideas and thoughts of the heart. And so I think you know this about your words. Your words carry weight, right? Your words have the, have the power to impact the people that you speak them to. And I think the words that you speak to yourself have the power to impact your life in a deep way. And so we know that our words carry weight, but our words have to be matched with action for them to really mean anything to anybody. But with God, what Jesus is telling us is that his words are actions and that Jesus is the tangible, complete expression of God's word. I think that's what Jesus is trying to, to show us here. And if you rewind back to the very beginning of John's gospel, he opens with some statements about Jesus. And in verse 14 of chapter 1, here's what he says. This is John talking about Jesus. He says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace, and truth. And so ultimately, Jesus is the Word of God become flesh. Jesus is the tangible expression of the Word of God. And this is what Jesus is getting at when he says, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And, and I don't know about you, but I think I have a tendency, and I think it's the same tendency Philip had, where I get caught up in a, a need to have a new vision or a new, a new idea about God in order to really believe that God's at work in my life. Or I need something beyond what Jesus has already said and, what be, and beyond what Jesus has fully accomplished to feel the love of God in my life. And here's what I think. I think that's completely reasonable. You know why? We're navigating a world that's full of all kinds of brokenness and loss and grief. And so I think it's completely reasonable as a person to get kind of sidetracked in the loss and in all of the things that you're enduring in this life and feel as if God is more distant than he actually is. But, but there's something that, about what Jesus says to Philip that I think is worth pointing out. I think on one hand, what he's saying is that he's the clearest, most precise, and most powerful of expression of God's love. And then on the other hand, what he's saying is that, never, that won't actually become a reality in your life until the words of Jesus start to penetrate your heart. And so when we read the words of Jesus, the things that he spoke about himself, and when we really listen to his teaching, and when we hear the testimony about his life and the legacy that he left from those who walked with him and, and, and knew him personally, and the countless people who for thousands of years have found that there's nothing more satisfying than building your life on the love of God that is made available to us by grace through faith in Jesus. I think that's when we start to see that Jesus is the fullest, most life-changing expression of God's love. And when we start to see Jesus in this way, the love of God moves from being something that we understand to something that we're standing our entire lives under. 
And so when Philip asks Jesus for this vision, Jesus just simply offers him something greater. And when we find ourselves asking for a vision, Jesus wants to give us something greater. He wants to give us himself. He wants to give us an experience with the love of God that's so deeply personal that it actually starts to reshape every area of our lives. Now, G- Jesus uses some sensory language here, and I think that, that can help us understand that he's really talking about a personal experience. He says, the one who has seen me has seen the Father. And he's not ta- that word seen does not mean like you, you, you saw him in passing. It means you're deeply acquainted with, you're deeply connected to, you're actually starting to see Jesus for who he is. And so according to Jesus, to know God's love rather than to just know about God's love is to see God. And he's the clearest way to see God. And so when Jesus, when Jesus uses this sens- sensory language, about moving from understanding God's love to standing under God's love. It really just reminds me of all the times in my life where I thought I knew what something really was, where I thought I understood something, but then you experience it firsthand and it becomes way more powerful and way more deeply personal. And I remember moving from a point where I believed in the existence of God to actually having a powerful encounter with God that started to reshape every area of my life. I don't even know that words are enough to describe what that's really like. And those of you who have had an experience like that, I'm sure you can relate. But something happens when you move from a place of understanding to standing under God's love. And here's the point. And I think this is really what Jesus is driving at here, at least one of the points. Knowledge is so different than personal experience. The things that are most real to you, at least the the ones that are most real to me, and I I think we're cut from the same cloth to an extent, the things that are most real to you are the things that you've experienced on a personal level. I think there are some things that have become so real to your heart, not because you know them intellectually, but because you've experienced them personally. And I, I, I think, I don't think it's enough to just know about God's love from an intellectual standpoint. In fact, I think that as human beings, we have a deep need to experience the love of God personally. And until we experience person, it personally, God's love is just, it's going to be nothing more than an abstraction. But when we do experience it personally, here's what I think happens when it becomes a reality in our lives. I think it can, it'll start to put the pain and the rejection and the ambiguity and the conflict and all the things that we experience in this life into proper perspective. Look, the words of Jesus and the testimony about Jesus that we find from cover to cover in the Bible. And then you couple that with the testimonies in our own lives and people that are a part of this church family and and people who for thousands of years have found that the highest level of human existence is, is placing your confidence in the love of God. When you take all of that together, the words that Jesus spoke, the words that have been spoken about Jesus, I think you start to see Jesus for who he really is and you move from a place where you understand the love of God to having an experience with the love of God that, that and now you're standing your life. You're hiding your life completely under the love of God. So knowing Jesus personally is how we know the love of God personally, which I think, I think that's great. Um, but I also think it begs some questions. And one of them is, well, 
well, what, there must be something different about Jesus. What's so different about Jesus that, that would make all of this possible if knowing Jesus personally is how you know the love of God personally? There's got to be something different about Jesus that makes all of this possible. So turn with me to verse 7. Here's what Jesus says. He says, if you know me, you'll, know my fa- you'll also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And so, so I mentioned this earlier. When Jesus spoke this, this uh, when he made this statement, it was just a few hours before he would be crucified. And, and what he was doing, he was kind of tipping his hand. He was saying that something's about to happen. Something was about to happen that would bring forth more clarity about the love of God than anyone had ever known. That through Jesus' death, people would be able to know the love of God in a deeply personal, life-changing, confidence-building way like never before. And it was partly because of what Jesus was about to do, but primarily because of who Jesus is. Back in the 1700s, there was a preacher by the name of Jonathan Edwards, and he preached what I think has become somewhat of an iconic sermon. Um, and, and, And the title of that sermon was The Excellency of Jesus Christ. And the aim of that sermon was what Edwards was really trying to do is he was trying to explain why Jesus had had such a transforming impact on people like Philip, on his earliest followers who, who literally heard him speak in a way that they, they had never heard anyone speak like this. And then they witnessed him live a life, a perfect life that no one had ever lived before. And they, they watched him die a death that they would later discover was a death that they themselves deserved. And then they saw the resurrected Jesus, actually saw him, got to interact with him and speak with him and have lunch with him and, and physically touch the, the, the place in his side where his side was pierced. And so Edwards was trying to explain why, why did Jesus have such an impact on, in the lives of people like that. And then furthermore, he was trying to explain why was it that for thousands of years, Jesus had been so compelling that he had transformed the lives of thousands, millions, I mean, innumerable amounts of people from every, every culture, every worldview, every walk of life. I mean, people from all over the place have had their lives revolutionized by Jesus. And, and Edwards was trying to offer an explanation as to why. He wanted to help people see why Jesus was so breathtaking. And the whole point of his message, and I think this is what Jesus is trying to show us here, and this is what you'll find in the Bible from cover to cover as it pertains to Jesus, is that Jesus isn't just fully human. He's fully God. And what makes him so breathtaking is that what we see in Jesus are characteristics combined that we we really never see in the average person. In Jesus, we see high majesty coupled with deep humility. We see a strong commitment to justice and infinite mercy. We see a tenderness without weakness, a boldness without harshness, a towering confidence and an unbending conviction with complete approachability. In Jesus, we see an unwavering truth, but it's bathed in unwavering love. We see power without insensitivity. We see integrity without rigidity. We see passion without prejudice. What we see in Jesus is, is, is the meekness and the humility of a lamb coupled with the ferociousness and kingship of a lion. The more you look at Jesus, the more you're going to gaze in the eyes of absolute beauty. 
Because Jesus is in a category all of his own. He's fully divine and he's fully human. And when you begin to see Jesus like this, and then you realize that on the cross, God personally, without any obligation, but from the depths of his great love for us, became a God who was so personally acquainted with us through Jesus. He became a God who relates with us in such a deeply personal way that he was willing to risk his reputation and endure an infinite cost to himself. When we start to see Jesus like this and realize that he did all of that to make us his own children, we're starting to behold the beauty of God and and really experience the depths of the love of God. I'm going to invite the worship team back up here as I close. But when we start to see Jesus this way, it'll move us from a place of knowing about the love of God to experiencing the love of God in a way that roots our confidence more deeply in the love of God. And and, and when that happens, when that happens, I think that, that we'll be able to join countless people who through the ages... We're able to have have become the kind of people who are able to, with conviction, proclaim the same thing that the Apostle Paul proclaimed. It's in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Paul Paul makes this proclamation that is, it's unbelievable. And I'm just going to read part of it to you today. Here's what he says. He says, in all these things, no matter what uncertainty or trouble or injustice or ambiguity or challenge, no matter what you're facing in this life. He says, in all these things, we are more than victorious through him who loved us. And I think when we start to see Jesus for who he really is, we'll become persuaded that that nothing in this life, not even death, angels, rulers, things present or things to come, hostile powers, height or depth, or any other created thing, will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look, because of Jesus, the most stable thing we can root our confidence in is the love of God. And as we root our confidence in the love of God on this side of eternity, and we experience uncertainty, and we experience loss, and we grieve, and we're confronted with tragedy and turmoil and death, We can face those things knowing that just as Jesus was God who come to us personally in the flesh, who came down to pour out the love of God into our hearts, we can confidently know that there's a day coming when God in another personal act, and this one, this one's going to set in motion an eternity that I think our hearts are longing for. I think every human heart has been longing for this since the time humanity began. And and a a time is coming when God is gonna fully unleash the promise of the resurrection. And here's, here's how we know. It's recorded in Revelation chapter 21, verses one through five. I wanna read this to you and just, just listen to this. Allow this to like penetrate your heart. Here's what John, the writer of Revelation said. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed 
for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. Now now listen to this, because it gets even more deeply personal than that. Verse 4 says, God, the, the, the infinite, most powerful, the most, the most amazing God in the entire universe. Here's what he's going to personally do. He's going to wipe away every tear from every eye. Every tear that's been wept, he's going to personally wipe it away. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Who was, and then we read that he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Look, God's love for us. Amen. God's, God's love for us is so personal and it's so unwavering. Can you see this? That his hand is gonna personally wipe away every tear you've ever wept and that he's gonna restore every loss you've ever suffered. And it's not a consolation. He's not doing that as a consolation to somehow console you. He's doing that because he's completely restoring all of those things. Look, church family, the love of God is something we can root our confidence in because it's something that has no end. Would you pray with me? God, we just want to be the kind of people whose lives have been shaped by a personal encounter with your love. And God, I'm asking you today, as as many of us are grieving and we're feeling the weight of loss, it's pressing us down. God, make, make yourself real to us. Make your love so real to us that everything else in this life gets put in its proper place. It gets put in proper perspective. Jesus, would you dwell in our hearts through faith and root us and firmly establish us in your love? Would you help us comprehend with your people, with all your saints, the length and the width and the height and the depth of your love for us? Would you help us to know the love of Jesus so that we may be filled with all the fullness of God? God, we love you so much and we just want to know you as you are. We want to see you for who you are. In your holy name, amen.